another Survival Guide podcast. I'm so excited about this episode because I think it's something that a lot of single moms start thinking about and that is repartnering. So on the show with me today, I have Marcia Watts. Marcia is a counsellor in private practice called Transform to Lead, which is based in Brisbane. She offers clients a compassionate, solution-oriented counselling service, which enables them to overcome obstacles and achieve their full potential. She is passionate about helping adults and couples to improve their personal lives and their marriages and their family relationships. And she has a special interest in repartnering and step families, as well as her own personal experience of a marriage breakdown and five years as a single parent of three boys before marrying her now husband, Ian, and creating a beautiful blended family. So I'm so super excited to have her on the show. We are talking all things repartnering, blended families, how to cope with divorce. So let's get right into it. Hi, Marcia. Thank you for coming on to the show. Oh, hi, Julia. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy you're here because I'm really curious about your views on repartnering and blended families. And I think the whole sort of journey of separation and divorce as a parent, well, there's so many sort of stages, I guess, of the single mother journey. And I guess one of the last ones is sort of being in a great headspace. And then, you know, Mm. as a result of that, that might include repartnering. And as a parent, that can bring about a whole new range of complex issues, I guess. No, absolutely. And it can also bring a lot of unexpected benefits as well. I think yeah. a lot of conversation about the, the challenges and the difficulties and, and they're real and they're there. But um, I think anything worthwhile is going to have challenges and difficulties and it doesn't mean it's not worth doing. But I yeah. think doing it with some wisdom and some insight and some preparation can certainly help when absolutely. you're dealing with those challenges. Okay, perfect. So I want to talk about that in more detail, but before we go into that, maybe you could tell me a little bit about your journey from sort of divorce to single mum to repartnering. Yeah, sure. So um, I guess to to back up even a little bit further, um, I was married very young. I got married at 18. Um, so I was very young and I was you know, very happily married for many of those years and had my three beautiful boys who, um, as I was saying to you before we started, uh, my eldest is 21 <laughs> and then I have my middle boy who's 18 and then I've got my youngest who's 12 and um, so I'm so grateful to have such beautiful boys and, yeah. um, and that, you know, I'm very grateful for the the marriage that I had that produced those beautiful boys. Yeah. Um, so I was married for just just under fifteen years. Wow, it's a long time. Yeah, it was a really long time, and never had any. Never thought that it would. You know, I just thought that was my path, and I never anticipated. I don't think any single parent. Or, or someone who goes through divorce ever anticipates that there's going to be a breakdown in the relationship. And I certainly never thought that that would happen to me. Yeah. And um, so when it sort of, when it did happen, you know, it was it was the biggest probably, you know, I, I would put it in terms of being a trauma. It was mm. huge trauma. I literally felt like my whole world had been ripped apart. And even key parts of my identity, I felt, had been really, ripped apart in that process as well being a wife and being a mother was really 
um, really intrinsic to how I saw myself and how I understood myself. Yeah. And, and was so was it a shock to you the end of the marriage? Yeah. Um, it was a shock. So it meant in a way it kind of when everything came out, there was lots of, oh, okay, okay, now that stuff makes sense. Mm. But um I, I found out sadly that my my then husband had been um, involved in a, another relationship with a, a really close friend of mine. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah. Awful. So that had gone on for about probably uh, for about 12 months before I was aware of it. Oh, my so gosh. There was that, that double whammy of losing a dear friendship as well as losing my husband. And yes. so yeah. that was – and, you know, I waited a long time because this was my marriage. Um, yeah. Waited to see maybe there was a possibility of reconciliation Um sort of kept a, a crack in the door, as it were, of my heart for about 12 months or so. Yeah. But then when it became very clear that, that you know, he had well and truly moved on into that relationship, um, went about very quickly sort of going and, and finalising the end of our marriage. Um, so, yeah, it was huge. It was, and I'm sure that there's lots of people who can relate to that, that it's... Um, yeah. I think in some ways going through a divorce is a bit like going through open-heart surgery without the anaesthetic. Yeah, absolutely. That is such a betrayal though. Like I don't know what's worse if it's your friend. Yeah. That's, oh, it's awful. Yeah, because I think for us as women we kind of have this, you know, intrinsic sort of sisterhood sense of, yeah. you know, you don't do that. But, you know, it does happen and, um yeah, and it happened to me and it was not something that I had anticipated. No, absolutely not. Far mm. out. So then um, you got divorced, I guess. After, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so by this stage I'm 32 and I, my youngest was just under two oh and gosh. my middle boy was, um, he was seven and my eldest was 10. So then I'm now a single mum. And, um, you know, and initially it was kind of, you know, there's all the shocks and the trauma and how am I going to do this and the panic and the anxiety that that kicked in for me. But then once I got through that initial adjustment, I kind of went, okay, I, you know, maybe there's actually some parts of this that might even be easier. You know, maybe there's parts of this that, you know, I decide what, we eat for dinner or, you know, like mm. I can actually have some of that. I can sort of become the CEO of our home. Yeah. And I sort of really embraced that role and I embraced all the challenges that came with it of, you know, learning how to put air in my tyres and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> from you know, learning how to turn the barbecue on. and Yeah. Things like that that I've never had to think about. And each little thing became like a little milestone, like, oh, you did that. You know, you it's had quite to, empowering, I think. It is. Yeah. <laughs> and it built my self-esteem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it was um, and, and something that was really important to me was I didn't want my boys and I to define our family as broken. Mm. I didn't want us to see that we had had, you know, like a whole family and now it was broken. I didn't want that to be... Um, a part of our identity and so I, I had just finished my undergraduate degree when all of this was happening and I just started my master's 
And so I ha- it was in a way, it was kind of this um, this foundation of tools. I thought, well, I've got to be, I've got to use this, you know, use this understanding that I'd learned through my studies. Yeah. And um, so I, I knew that it was really important that, you know, that you, you how you define your family and, and, you know, setting up new rituals and new traditions would be important but also that a family isn't just your blood you know sometimes a family can also be you know friends or or people that you choose like your family of choice Mm. and so there were a couple of really key people that had stood with me and stood with the boys and so I adopted them and said you're now part of our family yeah, <laughs> and so when there was kids' birthdays on, they came, and so I said to the boys, "Our family has got bigger; it hasn't gotten smaller." And so that became a really important thing. And we went and got family photos taken because I wanted to have an image, like a visual symbol, that was positive. So we went down to the local shopping center and got our photos taken. And so we did a number of rituals like that to sort of. I guess heralding our new family and the transition that we were going from a, a two-parent family to you know and a one-household family to now a two-household family and a single-parent yeah. family in my home, um, and to mark that in a, a positive way, take a little bit of control in that process. Yeah, I think that's a great thing. New traditions and new sort of rituals and stuff can be really yeah. great for just starting fresh. Yeah, and I think it's really important to sort of those internal changes that you go through, you know, as you're getting your head around this, what's just happened and, and how are we going to do this, and then you start to get your head around it um, to make it external, like that internal change, make it external and have some processes, which those traditions and rituals can be, that externalise that internal shift yeah. and to consolidate it. Yeah, definitely. Ah, so how long were you a single mother for? So I was a single mum for just under five years. Yeah. So um, that all, it all sort of unfolded in... 2006 and I remarried um, at the beginning of 2006 and I remarried at the end of 2010. So how did you meet Ian? Um, No, we actually met online. We met through a dating site online. That's so great to hear a positive story, a positive online dating story. Yeah, I think it's an awesome tool for single parents in particular. Yeah. because for me, it was really important um, to be careful about who came around my boys. Yes. Um, I almost became like, you know, you know, I was a mother bear and I had a bit of a fortress mentality. Yeah. Uh, you know, I really wanted to be very careful about who I let around my boys. Um, and because I got married so young, um, I didn't, you know, now here I am, you know, 32, 33, 34, 35, you know, what kind of man would I be drawn to? What kind of man would be drawn to me? And in a way, I kind of thought it was a really important time. Like I re- I was single for a number of years. I didn't sort of date anyone for about two years. And I didn't jump online straight away. It was only um, Ian was the guy that I, I met him online and that was it. But I'd gone on a few other dates um, and had dated quite a bit because I thought, 
it's just discovery. It's it's a process. I need to yeah. figure out who's drawn to me and what's drawn. So I kind of thought, well, I need to figure this out. And um, because my kids are so important to me, I thought, well, I probably am going to be best suited to another single dad. Yeah. Um, because how can you explain that that connection to your kids and how important your role is as a parent unless someone's in the same position? Yeah. Um, but I discovered in that process of dating, you know, a number of different people that we all approach parenting so differently. Yeah. And, you know, how single parent, it's not a vanilla experience being a single parent and, you know, some people are a single parent and they might see their kids a couple of times a year or they might only see them occasionally. They may not be actively parenting or they are actively parenting but they're in a really they are in a really different place. So I thought, oh, I really need to sit of narrow down this field a little bit <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, you know I found that some people hadn't processed the end of their relationship um, some were still locked in acrimony and um, I think that's really one of the challenges when dating yeah. other single parents because you realize well especially on the first dates you realize how much energy is spent talking about your exes which is so yep. natural and no see the level of anger that some people still have on them and yeah. you just go wow like yeah they're so not ready like yeah. <laughs> yeah and then you add being a counselor into the mix you can <laughs> yeah. imagine how dating went <laughs> yeah. a couple of my dates definitely turned into counseling sessions, sessions. yeah <laughs> no Thank you. I, we won't take this any further. Lovely to meet you. Yeah. I'll just spend a couple of hours with you. Yeah. Um, but when I thought, you know, my cousin had said she had met her her husband online, and she said, "Marcia, just be open," you know, because I thought, oh, you know, I'm I'm a technophobe. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I don't. This is just not how it was done when I was eighteen, and. You know, I just don't know about this online thing. And she said, Marcia, be open. And when I met her husband and saw their relationship and I thought, well, that's worked out really well. Yeah. Um, what what have I got to lose? And and I started to see that this could be a great tool for screening to and but also to sort of hone in that that process a little bit of, you know, what kind of single parent because it's not just another single dad, it would be you know, someone who's got a similar parenting style to me or has a similar level of responsibility to me and someone and is about, actively parenting. And what about sort of, um, you know, schedules? I guess that's yeah. challenging too because you might clash yeah. when who has the kids. And <laughs> exactly, exactly. There's all those Very variables. Yeah. It it's a much more scheduled process than when you're single. Yeah. Totally single. Um, yes, yeah, so I met Ian online and then we had our first date and we were kind of us. It was kind of good because I'd gone out with so many different people before I met Ian that as soon as I met him, I was like, I want you. Yeah. <laughs> You're the one. Yeah. And, but I tried to play it cool. like, <laughs> and, uh, and I made it very clear that I was being very cool about it. And then a couple of days later, I kind of said, Marcia men like Ian don't come along every day. Yeah. <laughs> don't leave him on the open market. 
<laughs> snap him up. Snap him up because someone will. Yeah. And so how many kids did he have? He has one little boy who is not so little now. He's taller than me. <laughs> so he's 14, nearly 15 now, but he was seven. Wow. When we met and, and so he, it was lovely in a way because he was a single child, an only child that wanted siblings. And yeah. so that, you know, that could have gone either way because mm. there's lots of only children that are really happy just being only children. And, and we were just really fortunate that Harrison really loved having brothers and, yeah. and was open to that. And, um, and my boys sort of felt this sense of empathy almost like, oh, this, you know, even though they knew other kids and they had other friends who had seen their parents go through divorce and that sort of thing, they felt this empathetic um, response towards Harrison of, oh, you've kind of, we've had this shared experience. And so they kind of took him a bit under their wing and, and um, yeah, I think them all being the same gender um, was helpful. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, what the dynamic would have been like if it was three boys and one and girl. girl. Yeah. Oh, I think it could have changed the ball game. Yeah. Um, or if there'd be even they, the research kind of indicates that boys typically cope a little bit better in a blended family scenario, but not the ages that my boys were because my oldest boy was, he was 14 at the time. And that's typically, you know, bow, bow, you know, we don't go there apparently. That's not the dumb, that's not the best age when kids are in adolescence. But yeah. I found that out after the fact. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we've already crossed that bridge. Probably a good thing because otherwise yeah. you would have been waiting for something to happen or, you know. <laughs> I would have waited another 10 years potentially. <laughs> yeah. And he would have definitely been snapped up by then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. So how did you go to live together? How mm. do you how do you go? How does that, you know, like <laughs> when I think about it, I'm just like, wow. Yeah. So yeah. It's such a big thing, isn't it, to think about? And um, because we went out for a few months before we introduced um, each other to our kids we kind of did in a bit of a staged process we yeah. um so once we were sort of pretty sure that yeah we're on where where this is a you know we're not just dating we're in a relationship and we really want to sort of we see this progressing further yeah then we started the the gentle process of first of all um ian came over and met my boys and we tried to make it, you know, we just, our aim was really just for okay, that everyone would just be initially okay with each other. No one had to be wildly excited or, you know, ex, um, you know ecstatic or excited to meet this new person, mum's new boyfriend. But um, if everyone would be okay, that would be, that was our goal. And we sort of thought, you know, let's do this sort of in parallel. So, you know, my boys love movies and, you know, they love pizza. And so I'd often on a Friday night have, you know, make pizza and we'd watch a movie. And so why don't you just come over and, you know, you know, all males looking at the screen together, eating pizza, <laughs> watching a movie. You know, that should be fairly non-confrontational. Yeah. And I said to the boys, you know, if you don't, 
feel like you you want to chat to Ian that's okay but he's going to come over and he'd love to meet you feel as free to chat with him as much or as little as you like you know just really sort of try to dial down the expectation and to my surprise they were really chatty with him and um, wanted you know they were curious you know because I hadn't really I'd only brought one other um, fellow home so they hadn't really been exposed to the people that I dated with and, and that this guy was kind of special. Um, they were curious. Yeah. So, then, so he met my kids without his son. And so how old were your kids at, the t- at that time? So 14, uh, how old was Jerry? 11 and Joel was five. Yeah. And um, so then a week or two later I went and met with Ian and his son and we went bowling together. Ah. So without, so it was just we sort of did that more one-on-one sort of thing. And um, I, you know, I thought that was a pretty safe thing to do because, you know, I'm not sporty at all, I'm not coordinated at all, <laughs> and these two are very sporty. So I thought, you know, he will, you know, Ian's son will win, yeah. it'll be great, <laughs> they'll go and play games and I can get afternoon tea like, you know, we kind of, Meanwhile, here I am winning at bowling. Oh, no. (laughs) Whatever happens, I cannot win this game. (laughs) Because you two are such competitors. And um, I said, whatever happens, it's got to be one of you two has got to win the game. So uh, (laughs) fortunately that happened. I think Ian or Harrison won, I can't remember now. Um, So, um, yeah, that sort of we had that and then we went out for dinner afterwards and, and I just really followed Ian's lead and, you know, where things are up to, where they were in and I just sort of really just sat in the background and um, my goal and Ian's goal and that was just for Harrison to feel okay and feel comfortable. Yeah. And then a couple of weeks later, like the boys were starting to say, so, you know, Harrison's saying, what's Marcy's kids like? And my boys are saying, what's Ian's son like? And, so we thought, well, if they're curious, that's a sign that they're probably ready. They're asking questions. Yeah. So um, he was probably a lot more apprehensive about it than I was. Um, I again said, look, you know, just as long as we're okay, that's that's the main thing. You know, we don't have the kids don't have to get along famously. As long as they're okay with each other, that should be fine. And he was a bit more anxious about it um, than I was, but. Um, I think because, you know, his son had been an only child mm. and then coming into a sibling group of three kids, um, yeah, understandably that could be a little bit overwhelming. Mm. And um, so we made a decision in Brisbane here. We have um, a place called South Bank, mm-hmm. which is they have, it's a bit like Darling Harbour at Sydney. Yeah. And um, so at South Bank here in Brisbane have a science centre and it has lots of you know, sciencey things and sporty things. We thought, well, we could just go and explore the science centre for the day and then go to the beach. They've got like a little man-made beach at South Bank and the kids can have a swim. And so that was our plan and that we'd catch the bus in together and catch it home. And the boys just connected straight away. Harrison just sort of came running in and my boys were excited to see him and... And I could just see him palpably relax. That's so good. And he would have been the same age as your eldest? Uh, so he was similar. similar. There's actually a five and a half year gap between my second and my third child. 
And a lot of people had said to me, oh, you should have another baby because you know, your third child doesn't have a, a pair. I said, oh, no, I'm done. <laughs> you know, three, three children, I've done my bit. Um, I've done an air spare and one for the country. <laughs> and, um, but Harrison actually fits right in the middle of that gap. Oh, uh, well, I think it was meant to be. Yeah, meant to be. Yeah. Definitely. And they get along. They're probably actually the closest. The two, young, Harrison and my youngest, are probably the closest. Oh, so sweet. Yeah. So did your schedules match up in terms of when both of your children saw their other parent? Yeah, that was a, another fortunate uh, happenstance. So Ian was largely working from home by that point. He was working for a large global organisation who's um, in human resources. So he was doing a lot of his work from home. And his ex-wife would, had um, Harrison pretty much the same time my ex-husband had my boys. Um, so that kind of worked out quite well. Yeah. And he had a little bit of flexibility in his schedule there to, for us to have you know, time to spend together away from the kids as well. So we would sort of had opportunity to have time together with the kids and then time away from the kids as well. Yeah. That's we're really fortunate. That we're sounds, really fortunate. Yeah, that sounds really quite perfect. Yeah, I mean, no, I know that that doesn't happen a lot. And, you know, for us, my my kids were sort of, we had this routine that we set up, my ex-husband and I, and pretty much even to this day, we still pretty much follow it. Yeah. Um, we're a bit more flexible because, you know, the older two are now, you know, young adults. Um, and they kind of, you know, choose their own schedule to a large degree now. Um, but, you know, it kind of, it worked. So my boys were having dinner with their dad sort of Tuesday and Thursday night. They would go for a few hours and then come back home. And then they'd go every Saturday night, Saturday morning to Sunday morning and sleep over. So it was sort of every weekend. Um, having that sort of 24 hours and, and Ian's ex-wife and Ian had sort of set up a reasonably similar sort of regime so we were just really fortunate in that regard yeah that's there wasn't too much of a clash that's really good I imagine that must be one of the issues yeah Um, let's just backtrack a bit I want to talk a little bit about um separation and divorce Mm. because especially sort of divorce recovery Mm. how does what are the typical ways that divorce usually affects women and how do we sort of mm. respond and react and recover yeah. from that? Yeah. It's really interesting because it, it's really appropriate to identify it according to gender because men and women typically do respond very differently to divorce and marriage breakdown. Mm. Um, I think in some regards as women, not that we have an advantage, but I think just the way that we're conditioned to be relational you know we expect you know we train and teach our little girls how to be cooperative and how to relate and how to make friends and and we touch each other and we hug each other and and boys don't do that no I think this generation it's shifting but men don't they're not they're not as touchy and and as relational like um and not that, that men don't need that, but it's just not as it's not a, as much of a part of the conditioning. So women typically will have the support of 
their their female friends or sisters or mother or and so they can have some of that offset that some of that bereavement and that you know those feelings of abandonment and rejection can some to some degree can be offset through their female friendships and even just a physical touch of being touched and hugged and given a kiss on the cheek and that sort of thing can go to some there can be that real skin hunger yeah and you know female friends can help to offset some of that for women going through marriage breakdown and divorce yeah and women are more likely to sort of jump in I guess and check in on their friends whereas guys are a bit awkward about (laughs) yeah 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 how you coping you know (laughs) yeah and to ask even to ask that's a totally okay question for us as women to ask each other are you coping okay whereas that there's not the expectation of needing to present you know having it all together whereas I think still a lot of men do struggle with that. I need to present as I'm coping. I need to present as I've got it all together when inside they're, they're cracking up and breaking up every bit as much as a woman going through divorce, but it's not as socially acceptable to acknowledge that. It's sad, isn't it? I think so. I think men can feel a lot more isolated and there is, you know, there is a higher suicide rate for men going through divorce and marriage breakdown than for women. And I, I do think that some of that is to do with not being able to access some of that emotional support. Mm. Yeah, it's yeah. a much bigger loss. And often a lot of men, their friendships are connected to their wife or their wife's friends, husbands. So when they lose their wife, they can lose a lot of their social circle as well potentially. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But getting back to your question a bit about um, how does divorce impact a woman, I think for women, um, you know, and I put myself in that, you know, we can really, you know, as I said earlier, we can really link and hinge a lot of our identity to our relationships. Mm. Um, Men, it might be more around work um, and those sorts of achievements. It's not that work isn't as important to women, but, I think our relationships and the quality of our relationships are so intrinsic to our sense of identity and security. Yeah. And that can really feel like your personhood, like who you are as a woman can feel like, you know, really destroyed going through a marriage breakdown. Yeah, definitely. Hmm. And it can be really hard to think, you know, would anyone want me? You know, is this person that I've had? kids with and you know we've exchanged vows and built a life together you know if he doesn't want me would someone else want me and now I've got these kids and would someone see that as a burden and yeah. there can be a lot of you know you know what we would say in you know psychology well perceptional baggage you know mm. how we perceive ourselves as having a lot of baggage that's the thing I think that's so common and yeah single mothers don't realize that you know when you're at an age where you are a single mother generally the people that you're meeting everybody has this so-called baggage like everybody has a history no one has yeah like you know no one is late no not at all and I don't think it's um I think the right people you will draw the right people to you anyway like you don't want somebody who sees you having a child or children as baggage, that's probably not no. the baby. 
That's exactly right. And that's sort of, that's a sign. Yeah. <laughs> There's a clue right there. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I think being a single parent is a position of pride. You know, you're doing mummy and daddy, you're doing yeah. it all. Like there's, there's real pride in that. And I think so too. Yeah. So when, when women sort of become a single parent or a single mother, what are your strategies for surviving and thriving as a single parent? Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of the women that I've worked with professionally um, and, you know, I can I have total empathy from my own experience, can feel, first of all, that the grief just needs to be acknowledged. It, 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 there needs to be permission to grieve. Yeah. And some women can sort of say, oh, you know, I feel so pathetic. I'm crying about this. And it's like, this is your marriage. It's okay. It's okay. You're not pathetic. Or even if he's moved on to it, actually, it means that you loved well, that you are grieving deeply. And to really honor that grief process and to give yourself that space and that time to feel those feelings and to grieve. And when we're right in the thick of grief, we can think it will never end. You can think this grief will never end and it will never be less intense. But, you know, sometimes this is where I will self-disclose a bit in, in therapy with women and say, you know, even if you can just go, you know, I've walked this and I'm okay now, but I, I was where you are, I was exactly where you are right now and, and it, you can be okay, there can be something, but it's, it's okay to be where you are right now. You're not going to be in this place forever. So I try to instill hope but also validate at the same time the very real and painful and intense feelings that are coming up. I think it's really important. You don't have to be strong. You don't have to be brave. That will come. Even just to grieve is an act of strength in itself. Absolutely. I think as well people don't even realise that, you know, the end of a relationship breakdown does involve actual grieving. Like absolutely, think of grief is what you do. Grieving is what you do when somebody passes away, or yep. you know, it's not. But grief is what you experience as well at the end of yes. a relationship breakdown, especially when there's children involved. Because you're, you're grieving for yourself, you're also grieving for your children. Yes, and the idea, the ideal, the picture that you had, the vision that you had for your family. Yeah, exactly. It's it's gone, and a new vision needs to be born, but that takes time. Yeah. And I, what you were saying about when someone dies, it's kind of like, well, if if your partner had died, there would be a funeral, there would be a wake, there would be cards, there would be flowers, there would be an acknowledgement, a ritual to celebrate, mm. or acknowledge, or recognize the huge loss that you have gone through and yet the loss is just as intense going through divorce but there is no ceremony that acknowledges that there's the legal process is really just stripped right back to the bare bones you know when you entered into marriage there was a ceremony and there was a legal process but it was kind of couched in this beautiful wedding when you go through a divorce it's just the legal process there is no fanfare there is no ritual to acknowledge that. And sometimes I really encourage women to create their own. Yeah. Well, you hear some women doing divorce parties. Yeah. yeah I, I did something a little, I didn't want to celebrate the negative side for me personally. I, um, but I did want to acknowledge in some way the transition that I was going to. So I had, um, it was a new life party. 
Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, and my sister's put together a basket, a bit like you would if you were having a hen's night and you'd have a basket of, you know, new bride survival kit kind of thing. Well, my sisters sort of did a different spin on that and they sent out to all my friends who are coming to my new life party um, a single girl survival kit. Please come and make a donation <laughs> to the single girl survival kit. So some people bought me G-strings and, you know, deodorant that was I think Rexone had a brand of deodorant and there was you know confidence whenever you need a squirt of confidence (laughs) it's just really thoughtful and funny and that's a really good idea I love it it was brilliant it was so lovely um and that that really helped me to sort of feel okay about you know embracing my new life and that there was a group of women who were you know acknowledging this process with me and and I wasn't alone in it. That was really significant. So I've shared that story with a number of my clients and said, you, know, you might have your own take on this and a, a way of acknowledging this that's meaningful to you and really encouraging them to find their own ritual yeah. that works for them so they can feel they can mark this transition in a really meaningful way. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. I think it's yeah. such a good idea. It's a real- yeah. And then I just really encourage women and, and it's a bit what I did for myself was to to give yourself the gift of time um, to, you know, there's that initial bereavement, you know, when you lose your partner to divorce of, and even if it's been your choice, mm-hmm. you know, even if you might have been the one, and I ultimately I, it was even though I ultimately made the choice to, to start the divorce process, um, so in a sense it was my choice. Um, but even if it has been your choice and it's been a really clear and a confident choice, there is going to be a sense of loss. Yeah. So to give yourself time to, to be with that loss. But with that loss can come a real feeling of loneliness mm-hmm. and isolation. And I encourage women to sort of see this as a time more shifting that loneliness to solitude, which is where you're learning how to embrace your own company. Yeah, and do some sort of some self development and absolutely things just because you can you know what was that course that you didn't that you put off for years and years because oh no that won't work with what's happening with my partner and it's like well do it do it now this is your opportunity before you're encumbered in another relationship and you're compromising you know be a little bit selfish you know that healthy selfishness and do things that you really enjoy on that time like the kids are with the other parent Make that time work for you. Exactly. Don't spend the whole time cleaning up no. and cleaning the house and cleaning out the fridge. Just yeah. relax. <laughs> Unless that's what you really want to do. Unless yeah. that makes you feel good, like, oh, great. You know, some women that's therapeutic, you know, to, yeah. you know, the kids aren't here, I can spring clean. And, you know, for me, I went and got a whole lot of new linen for my bedroom and, you know, rearranged furniture and made it look just the way I wanted it to look. So that can that can be important um but doing sort of things just because you can yeah so shifting that loneliness to solitude yeah um yeah and then just sort of really helping you to sort of transition your identity from married woman to single woman but doing that from a position of strength this is this is really, you know, there's good stuff about this. And, and it's a process. And initially the feelings aren't there. But over time as women allow themselves to have that permission to do things that 
they want to do and that make them happy and that fill their tank. I try and encourage women to see that as an opportunity that when your kids come back, you're going to have something in the tank. Yeah, exactly. You filled your own cup and you'll have something to give to your kids and they'll, they'll come back not seeing you sad but seeing you happy. And so they'll feel less concerned for your welfare because, you know, mum's okay and we can be okay too. Because kids, they pick up a lot of our emotion as well. Yeah, definitely. That's so true. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about sort of repartnering and remarriage. And yeah. It's something that a lot of people are really excited about and it's something that a lot of people really don't want to do. And there's a, either way, I think there's usually a bit of fear when there's yeah. you know, entering a new relationship when they have children. Yeah, I totally. think the biggest fear for me personally is probably the dynamic and the bond between my daughter and I will change. You know? yeah. What are some other things that people fear and how can we overcome them? Yeah, I think first of all, to sort of go, fear comes with the territory. Um, this is not going to be an anxiety-free exercise repartnering. It's it, the anxiety is going to be present. So kind of make peace, shake hands with the fear, and go, okay, I'm going to do this afraid. Um, but with someone who's worth being afraid for, <laughs> you know, like some someone who's worth the risk, someone who's worth stirring up those feelings. I think the big fear is will this happen again? Yes, that is another very big fear. Yeah. Will I go through, will I open up my heart and let somebody in and attach to them and fall in love with them and allow them into my children's lives and what if they betray me or what if they leave me or what if it doesn't work out and, you know, could I ever recover from that? And I think some of, there is some a bit of, you know, soul searching in that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of people who actually do make the choice of, you know what, I just don't think I can. I don't think I could recover from that. I don't think I could allow myself to open up. And, you know, even though 70, but the statistics say 70% of people who have gone through divorce do ultimately at some point repartner, there's a good 30% who don't. Mm. And I think it's okay. It's okay, like, to decide to remain single. Um, people only, a lot of people only define moving on in terms of moving on into a new relationship. But I think that's a very narrow way of viewing moving on. Yeah. Um, I think moving on into your life goals, what makes you feel alive and full of vitality and gives you a sense of purpose and passion, that's moving on. It doesn't have to just be defined in terms of have you found a new partner. No. Um, moving on can actually be sidetracked by finding a partner too quickly and not allowing self time for grieving and... Um, so you're kind of bypassing a step before you get to really process your grief. Yeah. Um, so in some ways that can ultimately be um, a bit of a step back because then you have to come, you know, often relationships that are built on that come a cropper. Yeah. The old emotions haven't been processed and they re-emerge in the new relationship. Yeah, I think so. You're kind of setting yourself up for failure. I think yeah. you need to... You need to be in the really good headspace. Yeah. And being able to know that you can tolerate a bit of anxiety mm. because this is going to be an anxious process to some degree or another. So knowing that you've got a little bit of robustness about you, that you can tolerate a bit of anxiety and a bit of apprehension because there are no certainties. That's one thing you've learnt going through a divorce is 
life has no guarantees. There yeah. are no certainties. And you've survived it once and you've really got to know that you can survive life's uncertainties again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and take it slow. Like in a sense, take it slow. Um, but then I think it, even just as we were saying right at the beginning, there's certain conversations where it could be right in the first date that have to sort of go right on the table right from the beginning that you wouldn't have done first time around. No way. Yeah. Would have shared so deeply and so personally in the first date when you were before you'd been a parent. Um, but they're kind of critical conversations you need to have very early in the piece. I think so too. Yeah. Because yeah. you don't want to waste any time. You're like you don't want to waste your time. You probably don't have a lot of time if you're no. a mum. Well, I don't have a lot of time. No. And, you know, there's just no time to just go on, you know, a whole heap of first dates. No. You just rather, but that's also the good thing about online dating, like you said. Yeah. Go through this screening process before you. Yeah. Yeah. Are we aligned at least on paper? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So we were saying before, like, you know, when you go on these dates with people and the exes always come up. And when you have, when you don't have children and you actually, you know, repartner with someone, it's very easy to sort of leave past relationships in the past. But as a parent, you know, most of the time it's not really an option because you're constantly no. dealing with your ex. Um, exactly. How do you keep your exes out of your relationship? Because mm. I think it's a common source of arguments in new relationships. Yeah, yeah, very true. I actually, in the, um, I think I may have shared with you, I'm not sure if I've shared with you, I'm about to um, have a book published on this topic of Steph and Blended Families. And a friend of mine is a journalist and she was coming over, she came over and we were going through, she was helping me with the editing process and she said, you know what, I'll get so offended at my current husband's ex-wife and yet my ex-husband will do the same behaviours and it doesn't bother me at all. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it can be this double standard it can seem. Yeah. So I think, first of all, one of the things that Anne and I did was we just made it okay that occasionally we were going to unintentionally call each other by our ex-partner's name out <laughs> of familiarity and habit. And just yeah. to right off the bat, it's no one's going to get in trouble for that. It's yeah. and to know where it's coming from. Um, and I think I had one bit of advice because that was something that really worried me. I was very concerned about how do we set some appropriate boundaries and they need to be somewhat hard and fast in some ways and yet flexible in other ways because the kids are coming and going and so your family is expanding and contracting expanding and contracting but that you in terms of your couplehood you don't want your ex-partner getting into that no you don't want it sort of getting to the point where it's all you talk about sort of consuming the relationship exactly yeah so I really encourage people before you repartner and I think that's a really good sign that you're ready is when you don't you're not needing to tell your breakup story as much. You've, you've had your opportunity to talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk a lot about it until you don't need to so much anymore in that you've found some resolve. Yeah. So there's some of the intensity has come out of the emotion and so you don't need to then bring that to your new partner and, you know, how unjust it was and they did this and um yeah, that will still come up. You'll still talk about those issues, but there's not the gritty edge of it. Yeah. The intensity. You've resolved some of those issues and you've accepted your part in it as well. And so there's there's some resolve. You've found your way a bit in that. So, you know, largely you might be talking about 
the logistical side of things, you know, how does our structure work, how does our routine work. But also it's it's important to be able to share with your partner some of the things that worked and didn't work in your marriage um, so that you can start this new relationship with that wisdom, that experience and and how you've learned and grown through that. Yeah. Um, and then when it comes to your ex-partner, like I didn't actually introduce Ian to my ex-husband until I think we were engaged. Yeah. I thought this, that's the, for me that was the right time. Um, and that was just a very brief meeting at one of the, the pickups or drop-offs and, um, you know, we're engaged now and so this is who he is and who he is and that sort of thing how did that go down (laughs) yeah look it was it was very informal and it went okay um I think um yeah there was lots of sort of like uh uh-huh yeah that kind of all makes sense (laughs) those sorts of head nods and I had that same experience when I met Ian's ex as well yeah um yeah it went quite smoothly although it's always a little bit hard I think sometimes for when your ex, well, when your ex-husband's you know, new girlfriend, uh, fiance is also a therapist. Sometimes yeah. people think, "Oh, she can see into my head, yeah. my mind." She knows what I'm thinking. No, no I don't. I, I'm, my own mind is a scary place. I don't want to read other people's minds. So I think there was a little bit of apprehension around that. Um, but we tried to keep that low key. Um, but I think for us it was about being able to, you know, make it okay for the kids, more importantly, to talk about the other parent. You know, there was it was okay. We weren't going to be threatened. I think Ian's ex-wife was a little bit worried that I might try to replace her. Yeah, and, I think that would be probably more a, a common worry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I tried really hard to reassure her that my maternal instincts had been well and truly satisfied in my my three children, and that I was not going to seek to become her son's mother. Yeah, that he had a mum, and he she didn't need replacing. That my goal was really to be, you know, a safe person in Harrison's life, to be his friend, to be more like an auntie type person to him. And um, you know, I did not have an eye on her job in any yeah. way. That was there, and I respected that as one mother to another mother. I respected her her role and and um, that I wasn't seeking to undermine or replace her in any way, and that I always would speak very respectfully of her with Harrison. Yeah, I think that's key as well. Just yeah, bad mouthing the other parent. Totally. I was going to ask you that about the uh, about that sort of um, role though as a stepmother, you know. Mm. Like, because I read your blog about the myth of the natural stepmother. Yeah. Which, um, you know, it's it's hard. I think being a stepmother would be really difficult. Ooh. Like Ooh. it's challenging not, like, I don't know how you sort of figure out that balance between, you know, especially when you have your own, own children as well and then you yeah. have rules for your own child and then yeah. not the same rules might not necessarily apply. You know? Exactly. <laughs> it's really difficult. And my stepson's on the autistic spectrum as well. Mm-hmm. So change was huge for him. Like change is big for any child, but for a kid on the yeah. spectrum, and that was huge. And, you know, Ian and I look back now and think, 
oh gosh, we were so naive because we thought, you know, oh, we're biological parents. We've got this whole parenting thing down pat. We know what we're doing. This will just be an extension. Yeah. <laughs> and I talk about it in, in my book and um, I realised I was very wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's a totally different skill set. And um, I remember I was about, it was probably about six, seven weeks after our wedding and I was on the phone to my mum and I said, oh, I'm just so exhausted. And she said, of course you are. You've just had a new baby. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you've just become a mother for this, you know, the fourth time. I said, but he's not my baby, you know, he's another woman's baby. She said, no, but you're learning how to be his mother. Yeah. Just like you had to learn how to to be a mother in your household, mm. you're not you're not his biological mother. But when he's in your household, you're the mother in the home, and you figured all of that out with your kids how to be the mother. But you haven't figured that out yet with him, mm. and you've got to learn how to connect with him, and that's exhausting. And that really helped me to sort of go, okay, this is a process. I don't have to have this all figured out. Just because I've been parenting for 14 years doesn't mean I know how to parent this child. I've got to learn him. I've got to figure out how I connect with him, you know, what tone of voice to use, what words to use, what behaviours make him feel safe, what routines is is he already used to. Um, The big thing that Ian and I really, and, and the research backs this, is when it came to my kids or when it came to his son, the biological parent takes the lead. Yeah. And we focused, so for me with Harrison was more about just getting to know him and just becoming not necessarily his friend but be, being friendly. Yeah. And and the same for Ian with my boys. It was about us just really, the biological parent made the decisions. Um, we would discuss issues as husband and wife, but the face that the child saw in terms of who was the decision maker was their biological parent and who did the discipline was the biological parent and who set limits and who, you know, said a friend could come over or couldn't come over or, you know, all those sort of things. That that was directed by the biological parent. And if the biological parent wasn't present at the time, we would sort of say, well, hang on a moment, I'm just going to call your mum or your dad and have yeah. a chat to them and then follow whatever they say. So I would always follow whatever Ian decided to do with his son. I would just follow it and vice versa, Ian with me. And so we that's sort of how we even continue to this day. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. It's hard. I think it'd be hard to, I mean, I only, I had um, my sort of new boyfriend's daughter over the other day for the day Yeah, uh, with my daughter being school holidays. And Ooh. I found it really, because it's, it's, because it's quite new still. And I mean, yeah. we've been together for a few months. Yeah. We've only just met each other's children and, yeah. you know, I've bonded really well with them, but um, okay. it's, it's, okay. So the kids don't really know that we're in a relationship. We've sort right. of introduced each other as our friends. You friends, know? yeah. We're not affectionate towards each other in front of them. Yeah. yeah. So, and then, you know, that'll be sort of the next step, I think. In yeah. A few months. That's nice. That sort of gives them a slow transition. Yeah. You know, and we're not right. spending loads and loads of time together. It's very gradual. Ooh. And I have a lot of male friends anyway with kids. So yeah. for my daughter, it's not a huge, a huge deal, but, um, so I had his daughter over and she was very, like, I could tell she was behaving in a way which she wouldn't normally with her dad. And I knew she was sort of 
I think, testing the waters and testing yeah. the boundaries. And yeah. I found it really challenging because obviously I don't want to, you know, sort of discipline her because I want her to like me. Yeah. You know? So I don't want to be like the meanie going, no, you can't have that. The wicked stepmother. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know so I was just like I pretty much did what you said actually I was like oh I don't know you know I won't have to check with your dad and when he picks yeah. up you can see you know, yeah but, um it's good I plan think, yeah <laughs> but I was, it did make me think like man this is going to be a challenge yeah yeah like you said I guess it's a learning process yeah definitely and and I think that's where you know even what we were talking about before about you know how do you you know, contain your X factors, I call them, your X factors, (laughs) but also you've kind of got to bring them in at the same time as well and particularly around the parenting stuff. So trying to find out, so what was your routine? How did you do things? You know, what? how do you guys typically make decisions about your child or children? And so trying to understand some Particularly people who come into, I, I found this more with step moms who come into a step family without previously being married or have had a child, um, almost wanting to erase the former partner. Yeah, and sad. I can understand where they're coming from in a sense because it is threatening and it is challenging, but I've tried to help them understand that you've got to name it to tame it in a way like, get to know you don't have to get to know her per se like as individually or or become besties or anything like that but try to understand what was important for her and how did they make decisions together because that will actually give you really important information Mm. so that when you are johnny on the spot you can kind of go well i know what's been important for these parents and and if I don't have access to my partner to ring on the spot, I can sort of wing it a little bit yeah, because I know how they've typically made decisions and that will then empower you more as a stepmother to sort of feel like, well, I can do this because I've got something to go off. Yeah. Um, you don't have to be super close or even close at all with, with the other, with the biological mother, but I think it helps to understand and it helps you to develop your own confidence. Yeah, definitely. Mm. So when, you know, when you bring two households together, mm. um, there's, you know, I assume a whole range of other things like, you know, different family rules, traditions, yep. routines, um, birth order of kids. Yeah, sibling rivalry. Like, yep. I don't know. Like what about uh, the kids feel like, I think kids would feel like they are betraying maybe the other parent if they get close to their new, you know, step-parent or whatever. Yeah. It's challenging, isn't it? It is really hard. And Ivan was very apprehensive of that too because I could notice Anne's son was really bonding with me and I felt, oh, I don't want to cut in on another woman's, you know, relationship with her son and, I was feeling really conflicted about that and I chatted to one of my psych friends about it and she said, no, Marcia, it's really okay. Be as close as you feel comfortable because it's a different relationship altogether. Yeah. And it's like view of it more like an auntie or an uncle and yeah. you can choose your comfort. You can choose your closeness. You have might some, you might have an auntie or uncle that you're really close to and then another auntie or uncle that you're not, but they're still your auntie or uncle. They're still someone that you respect in your family. They're an adult in your family. And so 
that was a conversation I had with Ian's son was, you know, you have lovely relationships with your aunties and, you know, they're people that do things for you, that support you and, and care about you. And I'm kind of similar to that. I'm kind of similar to another auntie and no one in the whole world will replace your mum because you look just like her and yeah. and that's awesome. Um, but I'm going to be like a mother type of person, a bit like your aunties or a bit like that. And he kind of went, oh, he could, he could get that. He could understand that. Yeah. And my kids could understand that as well too. Um, I remember one of my kids did throw it back at Ian one day like, you're not my real dad. And he just said, duh, that's not the issue. <laughs> the issue is you don't speak like that to my wife because he was being a bit mouthy. Yeah. And my son kind of went, oh, he kind of really respected that. It was like a man-to-man thing, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I've heard of that a lot of people saying that, that you're not my real dad or, you know, my real mum. That would be, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and it's, you know, it it goes right to the jugular. Yeah. (laughs) And sometimes that's the only power the kids have in a situation because, you know, mum and dad may have, it was, you know, mum and dad's decision in some way, shape or form to end the marriage. It's been mum or dad's decision to repartner. So where do I as a child have any power or say in things? Yeah. And that can be their opportunity. Yeah. And if you're not prepared for that, it can throw you. So um, to have a sort of, you know, think about that. How am I going to handle that? And how am I going to diffuse that and not take that too personally, you know, at least in front of the child? Yeah, definitely. Take that emotion elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just trying to think. <laughs> I'm hoping I never, ever said anything like that to my stepmom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think I'll have to ask her. <laughs> it, no worse than probably any child has ever said to any parent, you know, we've all said things that we probably aren't proud of. And yeah. <laughs> it's all part of it. <laughs> What about, do you think it's important, you and Ian never had a, a child together, did you? No, no, we haven't, no. Do you think that's, like, do you think that is an important thing for, you know, to people who have come together yeah. to do or it doesn't really matter? I think, so there's lots of um, remarried couples where, or repartner couples who, who do choose to have children. So Ian and I were 36 when we got married and we had our four boys between us and we really weighed this one up. We really thought long and hard about it and I'd already had three kids and Ian had had his son and we kind of thought, you know, we really thought what would it be like to have an hour's baby and it was, you know, it, there was a lot of pull on that. We did really have to weigh that up. Um But we ultimately came to the decision that for us, and this is what worked for us, and I certainly don't put this on to any other repartnering family or or blended family in any way at all, but this is the conclusion that worked best for us was that our kids had sort of all been through a fair bit. Yeah. um, And we weren't sure if we wanted to put that on them, if that would create more displacement in any way. So we decided to put all of our parenting energies into the four kids that we had. Well, four is already a lot anyway. It's a lot of kids already. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of scheduling to do already. Yeah, exactly. There's heaps of people who do decide to, to go for another one or two and, uh, you know, total respect for that. But for us, that was, and we were 36, we kind of thought, oh, you know, there's lots of people who start having babies at 36, but we had started much younger. Yeah. 
and we were kind of on to that next stage of parenting and it would have taken us back to that earlier stage and we kind of thought, oh, that's probably not going to work for us. Yeah, it's fair enough, I guess. Yeah, everyone, yeah. everything, everyone, things work differently for everyone. What am I trying yeah. to say? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there'd be lots of people that say, you look, we, that, that is really important to us. But I think it's a bit like if you do go down that path, try to really be very intentional about that in terms of bringing the kids that you already have into that process and how this child isn't going to be a more special child in the family because it is an hours baby. Um, yeah. This is going to be, you know, another member of our family and how can how will this affect their roles and their relationship Um you know, it could have a change in the birth order of all the kids and, you know, what would that be like if you're now going to be a big brother or a big sister and you've been the youngest or really try to be very intentional in your conversations and involve the kids, you know, age appropriate in that process. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine that would just bring a whole new array of challenges, I guess, but yeah. lots of positive things too, probably. Yeah. Actually, I had a stepmom say to me last week that her and her husband had, um, she had been previously married and had two kids and then she married her current husband and they had had a child together and that child used to get really upset that she didn't get to go to another parent's house. <laughs> like, where's my other dad to go to? <laughs> <laughs> they found that really funny. <laughs> Hilarious! It's the last yeah. thing I'd think of. I thought that I'd think it would be more the other kids who were like, "Yeah, why, why does that child get to stay here all the time?" Exactly. <laughs> she thought it was so cool because this their brother and sister got to go off with the other, with their other dad and with their biological dad and do all these fun things. And they come back on the weekend and say, "We did this and we did that." And she's like, oh, "I'm just stuck here with mum and dad." <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. It's okay. <laughs> it is. It's the modern modern family, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. All right. Um, I have got to go because I've got to go pick up my daughter from daycare. Yes. Um, I think we've covered quite a lot today. Was there oh, anything wow. else that you wanted to talk about? Oh, look, th- this to me could be an endless topic. Yeah, I wrote a whole book on it. Yeah. So, Tell me about the book because I'll put the details for it in the show notes along yeah. with, is it transformtolead.com.au? Yes. Yep. Yep. So the book hasn't been published yet, but um, I've written a book. It's pu- The book is designed to be a resource guide to, I guess, two people. Uh, step families, members of step families, but also professionals who work with step families. There's a whole lot of new things you need to take on board as a therapist working with a remarried couple or a step family that it's very different to how you would approach a, a first couple or a or an intact family. Mm. So I've tried to sort of give some education to therapists as well, but also to empower step families. Um, the book is called A Step Up for Step Families and to it's designed to each chapter it can be a takeaway so that you can sort of, oh, this is what's happening, I just need to read that chapter and um, get some information and some resources and some empowerment. There's not a lot out there for step families. No, there's not and there's not enough out there for single parents either. Exactly. It's all just like the traditional family unit and parents. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. I think that's so fantastic. I'm definitely going to get a copy. So where, how do we get that? Well, when it's published, I'm, 
I can let you know all of those details. At the moment, it hasn't been published. So um, there is a there is a major publisher interested in it. So um, if that comes together, um, I can let you know about that. If that doesn't come together, I'm going to self-publish because I, I just need to get it out there. I just yeah. really want to empower other step families because there is some really key stuff that you can do that can make a difference. And um, there's a lot of good news about step families to balance out. We hear a lot about the negativity and the challenges, but there's a lot of good news and I want to tell that good news. Absolutely. I think that's so good. I was reading a book the other day called Helping Your Kids Cope with Divorce. Yeah. And um, there's a whole chapter in there about step families and stuff. Yeah. And it mentions a lot of the positive things. And it was saying that, um, now I have to remember the statistics, but I think it was 70%, uh, what was it? Um 80%, sorry, 80% of children of divorce living in step families have no behavioural problems Ooh. and statistically they do nearly as well as children whose parents never divorce. Yeah, yeah. So that's it's conflict that makes the difference. If children are exposed to conflict, that's where they experience harm. Yeah, yeah. So children aren't being exposed to conflict and so children can be exposed to a lot of conflict in an intact family. Um, so just because a family's gone through a divorce doesn't mean it's broken. Absolutely. In fact, it can be a way of protecting everyone from brokenness. Yes. Mm. And some of the other benefits that this book talks about is um, for, well, for the parent anyway, you've got the um, practical and emotional support. Yeah, financial support. Yeah, the financial support, the, yeah, the increased family income, the more adult involvement with children. Yeah. Um, and I think also you're setting a great sort of example to your children that um, there's second chances in life. Absolutely. You know, so just because things end, it's not the end. Exactly. It's yeah. the end of that. It's not the end. Yeah. To separate the two. And even better, um, as we were saying at the beginning, you know, statistically uh, marriage breakdown in second marriages is higher than first marriages but what that you just hear that snapshot you don't hear the rest of the sentence and the rest of the sentence is it's within the first five years yeah I've read that as well I found that really interesting because I think I only heard the first part of that sentence yeah and then added to that once as a couple you get through the first five years the divorce rate actually plummets to 20 percent so second marriages that get to year six seven eight nine ten are actually enjoying a much more secure and stable marriage. They feel more aligned to their new partner. They feel more compatible um, and they tend to have a more stable marriage. If they can navigate the the challenges of the first five years, um, they go on to have a very stable marriage. Yeah. I think I always thought that statistic sounded so strange because I thought wouldn't people be more, you know, I know for me I'm going to make a lot better decisions for the type of person yeah. that I pick to partner with. You know, yep. I feel like yep. they would be a lot more cautious, yeah. be more alert to any red flags or any incompatibilities, you know. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's great. All right, well, I'm going to put your uh, Facebook link in the show notes as well, which is Marcia Watts Relationships and Wellbeing Counselor. Yep. And was that the other only social media? 
yeah yeah that that that's enough <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's so time to manage yeah. yeah yeah all right well thank you so 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 much for coming onto the show I know um yeah there's so many single mothers who are in this sort of headspace of repartnering and all the challenges yeah. that come along with that so it's been wonderful to hear all your advice and to hear such a great success story oh so, thank you Julie thank you it's absolute pleasure to talk with you thank you so thank much you. I really appreciate it Pleasure indeed. Lovely to chat with you too. Okay. <laughs> okay. Bye for now. See ya. Bye. Bye-bye. Hope you guys enjoyed that chat with Marcia. There's a lot of things to think about there for the future if you're not at that stage yet. And if you are, that's, you know, some really, some really good things to think about there as well. I've got a special surprise for you guys. I'm putting in a like a special sort of bonus episode which is going to be released on Sunday morning for Mother's Day if you're in Australia so um, I know it's going to be a tough day so for some of you who are just sort of new single mums so have a keep an eye out for that and have a listen to it if you're feeling a bit down I would absolutely love it if you guys could rate this podcast in iTunes so to do that If you have an iPhone, you go onto your podcast app, you click in the bottom right-hand corner in search and you type in Single Mother Survival Guide. You do this even if you have subscribed. So once you have clicked on it, then you will see the podcast episodes and then below that, the podcasts. Um, If you click on the the podcast, like the whole actual podcast cover art as a whole, you click on Single Mother Survival Guide and then there's different tabs. So you click on Reviews and then you just press Write a Review and then you put in your iTunes password. You don't have to leave your real name if you don't want to and then you can either rate or review this podcast. That would mean the world because it means that other single parents will be able to find this podcast a lot easier. So thank you so much for doing that. Um, Yeah, hope you loved that chat with Marcia. That was amazing. Please get in touch with me if you have any questions or if you have any feedback. I would love to hear from you. All the details will be in the show notes and I will speak to you guys on Sunday and then on Wednesday as usual. Okay, bye.